This past week, I went with a few people of the church uh, to a conference. And one of the main speakers, he got up at, towards the end and, of the conference and, and he talked about what power in the kingdom looked like. Last week we talked about a powerless gospel and why we're content with a powerless gospel. <clears throat> and and why, why that's that way. Now, he quoted this verse. He, he quoted John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in, in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Then this pastor who i believe loves jesus with all his heart i believe he's going to be in heaven i believe that he is promoting the same gospel that we are promoting explained why this meant greater in scope but not in kind and i think he's wrong he declared that he'd never healed anybody from afar that he'd never raised anybody from the dead. That he'd never turned water into wine. That he'd never done any of these things. And so it would be greater in scope. More people would come into the kingdom. But that it would not be greater in kind. And his explanation for why this was. Is because during the apostles lifetime. Miracles started to die down. Which church history does not bear that out. That did not happen during the apostles' lifetime. But in the three to four hundred years preceding the apostles' death, they did start to fade away. And his explanation for this was that they weren't needed anymore. And I got to be honest with you. I, I believe this brother is going to be in heaven, but I, I just I don't see this in the scripture. I don't see this as the explanation for why miracles die down i don't see this at all from the bible this comes from the teaching of man if i had nothing but the bible to go by there's nothing in here that says that i should expect god to not be involved we have let our experience dictate to us what truth is rather than going to god's unchanging word the Christian and Missionary Alliance always has been and always will be, and it's not up for debate, cautiously charismatic without chaos. We believe that God is still in the miracle business. We believe that He's in the miracle business still. We're cautious about it because there's sometimes some ridiculous stuff that happens that people say is Jesus. And quite frankly, it's not. You know, I've seen some crazy things happen that it wasn't the Lord. But I've seen some crazy things happen that I can't explain that I know it was Jesus. The problem with this preacher, though, as he was explaining all this to us, was that he began to talk about miracles that he knew had taken place. He knew that there were people who had been healed 
Another one of the preachers at the conference, pastors a church of about 6,000. I looked at his blog and he talks about healing. He says it's healing for today. And he said yes and no. And he talks about all of these places where he knows that people have been miraculously healed. And, and then he said in his blog, and I won't tell you who it is because I believe this guy loves Jesus too. And I believe that he teaches a lot of great truth. I just think he's sketchy on the miracle part, right? He, uh, he, he explained why it's wor- it works overseas, but we should expect it over there, but we could, shouldn't expect it as much here. Do you know the implications of that are saying that they need him over there, but we're technologically advanced enough, we're smart enough, we don't need him here? That is not a good place to be. That is not a good place to be to say, we don't need God, Right? This, you know, so again, he, he admits, these two pastors, they admit that miracles are happening, but that really, you know, they're explaining why it doesn't happen here. I said the pastor loves the Lord. I know he loves the Lord. I, my spirit testifies he's going to be in heaven with us. But he's starting from his teaching from a place of him not seeing Miracles happen consistently. So therefore, they, they're not a part of what we should expect. Church, can I be honest with you? Pull your toes back real quick. This might hurt. I see Christians not living righteous lives consistently. That doesn't mean the doctrine of holiness has gone away. That means people are choosing to sin. That doesn't mean we don't teach holiness anymore. That means that people are choosing to rebel against God Almighty. We don't start with our experience. It is not the starting place for truth. Your experience will interpret truth as you read it. And I understand it's hard to remove ourselves from this. But we have to start from God's Word. As we say that we have to start from God's Word, I think the problem is with this doctrine of teaching that that the gospel is pretty much powerless in the form of miracles today is that we have to ignore some pretty crucial passages of Scripture. Last week I gave you homework and I said, wrestle with this. Do these passages of Scripture still apply to the church or do we nix them? Do we say, nope, you can't pick some spiritual gifts and not take them all. We don't get to pick and choose what to believe. It's either all correct or it's all a lie. I know it's messy. I know if if somebody comes up and 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 believe and brings a prophetic word a word of knowledge we we're gonna have to weigh it and we're gonna have to say is this from god we're gonna have to look at what god said in the past and and well we might have to call them down and say brother we, we love you but that doesn't line up with scripture and it gets messy and it gets dangerous but since when did god call us to comfort since when did he call us to safety I think we've ignored some passages of Scripture when we come up with titles like, or with with doctrines like this. 
And I think, by the way, that the scriptures very much indicate why we don't see miracles happening the way we should. It actually tells us right in the Bible. Lots of passages. One of those passages happens to be our right in where we're at in Hebrews. And it talks about there being two competing kingdoms. It talks about there being two competing kingdoms. Locked in a cosmic battle. And because of that, we see things happening sometimes and not happening other times. And so I want you to please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. We're going to look at these scriptures and then we're going to see, do these scriptures give a reason for why we sometimes don't see miracles happening? Because I'm preaching that we should expect God to move. But sometimes He doesn't, right? And I wonder, why doesn't He? Does the Bible tell us why? So that we don't have to come up with our own reason. Let's read it together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from something like the King James or the New King James or the NIV. That's okay. They're all just different translations of the Scriptures into English. The heart is the same. Now, in verse 5, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. I, I, I just want to pause real quick. I love this. It has been testified somewhere. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say where. He doesn't give the address of the Scripture. I just love that because we memorize Scripture and we're always like, you know, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. And then the the writer of Hebrews goes, eh, it's been testified somewhere. (laughs) Jesus did this. He goes, well, you heard it was written and he wouldn't tell where. He just, you know, he just said it, right? I'm sorry, I digress. There's things in Scripture that amuse me, though. Um, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? The son of man is a title for Jesus, by the way. You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's what the passage said. I just read the passage. Last verse, somebody said, hmm, we're going to talk about this in depth. This is not me making it up. This is what verse 8 says. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Hmm? Hmm? That's the appropriate response. (laughs) Amen, sister. That's the appropriate response. Let's pray. God, that is just crazy what that says right there. And we are scratching our heads. We are scratching our heads right now. We ask you by your spirit to teach us today. What does this mean? What does this mean? Holy Spirit, please come and instruct our hearts because without you, it's worthless. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.
the sister had the right response, in my opinion. Is it under his control or not? Is it under his control or not? Verse 8 says that everything is in subjection to him, but yet we don't see everything in subjection to him. So is it under his control or is it not under his control? What is this? Right? We see in this passage of Scripture that via the incarnation, God lowered himself, in verse 7, that's what it's talking about there, through the person and work of Jesus in order to bring the world back under kingdom dominion. Let me just give you a little Genesis history. God created everything. And it was good. And then he put man, kind, men and women, in charge of it. And then we gave control of it away to Satan. At the temptation, after Jesus had the Holy Spirit come on him at his water baptism, he went out into the wilderness to be tempted. For 40 days he fasted. The last temptation was that the devil said, if you'll worship me, I'll give all this to you. Church, it was Satan's to give. Jesus didn't say to Satan, it's not yours to give. He said, you worship the Lord your God alone. We were put in dominion over the earth and then we gave that authority away. And we're dealing with that now. And we're dealing with that now. If you could advance my next point. We find out in this that this work is not yet fully finished. This work is not yet fully finished. This is what we're seeing here in this passage of Scripture. He's saying now that we've put everything in subjection to him, but everything is not currently under his control completely the way that it ought to be. Everything's not under his control the way that it ought to be. Do you guys see that in the passage? That's where the sister said, hmm? You know? She's like, uh, I'm not tracking here. Right? It's not a finished work. I know I'm repeating myself, but I want you to get this as we go on here. Is it under his control or not? Theologians have wrestled with this for a very long time. Theologians have wrestled with this for a very long time, and we've come to this theological paradox. We've come to this theological paradox. What this passage seems to indicate is that the kingdom of God has come, but not yet fully come. The kingdom of God is now and not yet. It's here, but not all the way here. That's what we're seeming to see here. We know that God's word is true. 
And within two sentences of one another, God says, it's all under His subjection. Yet we don't see it fully under His subjection. We live in the time of two overlapping kingdoms. This theological paradox, and I'm going to explain paradox in a minute, is what pastors and theologians like John Wimber, Bill Randall, and Ron Walborn call kingdom theology. It's what we call kingdom theology. And we use the word theological paradox for a very specific reason. A paradox is defined as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. This passage fits the definition of paradox well. That it's in subjection to him, yet it's not in subjection to him, don't seem to go together. Yet, when we investigate it and we read the Scriptures, the Scriptures say that, and we know the Scriptures are reliable. These two things do not seem to line up with one another. Yet, if we believe, and even if we don't believe, that God's Word is true, we have to accept the fact that it's somehow they're both true at the same time. Accepting that they're true at the same time is our starting point. And then from there we say, how can they both be true? This passage fits the definition of paradox rather well, doesn't it? Doesn't it fit the definition of a paradox really well? I mean, there's nothing more true or accurate in this world than God's holy word. There's nothing more true or accurate than God's word. So we know that though it seems to contradict one another... It's actually impossible for it to contradict one another because God is not a liar. He's not double-minded. He's not wishy-washy. So they both have to be true. The kingdom is now and not yet. The kingdom of God is now and not yet. It has come but not fully come. We know this to be true, that the kingdom of God has come, because while Jesus has opened the pathway for the redemption of, his, of mankind through his sacrifice on the cross, the world is, is not yet fully redeemed. We know that. The Bible tells us in the future that Jesus will personally return to the earth to set up his kingdom on earth. There are a slew of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ that he has not yet fulfilled. They all concern him reigning as a king on the earth from Jerusalem. He's not done that yet. So he either has to do it or he's not the Messiah. He either has to reign from Israel in Jerusalem as a king or he's not the Messiah. There was probably a point in Christianity where that got pretty scary. Because Israel ceased to be a nation. Yet there was a passage of scripture that says, Can you make 
a nation that is not a nation, a nation in a day? And do you realize that back in the 30s, I think it was in 35, that Israel, and I could get, my year could be wrong, could be 37, it's somewhere back 30s and 40s, Israel was not a nation, had no land, had no nothing. And in one day, they had national boundaries back in the land. In one day! In 1948, I was off by a decade. In 1948, in one day, it's like, whoa, maybe he is going to rule in Jerusalem as a king. Israel has borders again. So we, but we know that he's got to come and do this and the kingdom's not fully come for that reason. But you know why else we know the kingdom's not fully come? Because Jesus, because it says that we have redemption in him, right? But uh, friends, I've been sick as a believer. I've physically gotten ill. And God says that when the kingdom comes fully on the earth, there's no more sickness. I've been sad, hurt deeply as a believer. When the kingdom fully comes, there's no more sorrow. It says our God will wipe away every one of our tears. So we know it's not yet fully come. Yet every one of us being born into the kingdom of God shows that it has come to some degree. When God spoke to my heart, when somebody presented the gospel to me, excuse me, the gospel to me, and and they told me about Jesus Christ, and they told me what I needed to do to be one of his children. There was something inside of me, God's voice, by the way, welled up and said, this is true, believe it. And God radically transformed me. So I know that it's come. Since I have been your pastor... Standing up in the front praying with people. God has has spoken into my spirit via His Holy Spirit specific things about people's lives. And I test them with fear and trepidation and say, I don't know. And they're like, yes. And so we know that the kingdom of God has come at some point. Jesus, He said this, He said, if I cast out demons and I do the healings and I do all of this stuff, then the kingdom of God has come among you. But yet, it hasn't fully come. He's willing that none should perish, and yet there's people all over the world every day dying and spending an eternity in hell. His kingdom's not yet fully come. Why is this? Why is this? This is because another kingdom exists and it is at war with the kingdom of God. It's pretty interesting. Nobody knew what I was going to be preaching on today besides me and Bonnie. And Bonnie, not fully. <laughs> and yet, Mark says, can we do the scripture reading? And stuff? I says, sure. And people felt led of the Lord to talk about the competing kingdoms, the weapons of our warfare, 
are not of the flesh, but they're spiritual, useful for tearing down strongholds. These are the kind of things that people were reading. What do you think God is trying to say? I didn't tell anybody this. Just Bonnie and I, and Bonnie not fully, because I told Bonnie in the slides, Bonnie, who has to translate me, Bonnie, I'm having a hard time putting into words exactly what I want to say in writing. Usually she has a little more notes. Today she just has my bullet points. I'm stretching her. Yes, with very big words. <laughs> but people got up and they read these scriptures about this war that's going on. Keith didn't know what I was going to preach about this week, but he sent me a message while I was in Texas. Brother, I think the Lord is telling me to tell you to pray on the armor of God. Why? Because there's a war going on. It's a real war with real casualties. The kingdom of darkness uses many weapons in this war and they partially explain why we do not always see miracles happen. Partially. This isn't a full treatise on why miracles don't happen. It's a very complex problem. But here's, but, but there's, but here's a partial explanation that there's a war going on. What, are, what is the kingdom of darkness's Weapons in this warfare. Doubt. I got to be honest with you. In a lot of ways, it's, it's doubt that keeps Sarah and I from praying that God will grow her leg back. My wife is a left leg amputee. And, and, and we doubt, and you know, we believe, and yet it's like, man, can I really believe him for this? It's, you know, we doubt, we, we know he can do it, but we doubt that he will. And so we don't approach in faith. It's the enemy who sows doubt. It's the enemy who, it doesn't mean we're bad when we doubt. Look, if you doubt sometimes, it's no condemnation. Just realize where doubt comes from. It's the enemy coming at you, attacking your faith, trying to break you down. That's where it's coming from. We have an enemy of our soul and he wants to break us down. He wants, us, he wants to keep us away from experiencing all that God has for us. Doubt keeps it away. Unbelief. Unbelief is different from doubt. Unbelief doesn't struggle. Unbelief chooses not to believe. Unbelief says, I see this in Scripture, but I choose not to believe it. One of the weapons I've already mentioned, physical sickness. If the kingdom of God has come, then why do I have the flu? The enemy uses physical sickness. I want you to understand, God can use that as well. I don't believe that God causes it. But he says he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So he can redeem those things. Okay? But physical sickness is, a, is a, something that the enemy uses against us. I, I got another big one. Sin. 
you know, rebellion against God, which blocks his moving. You know, I know that God says that I'm not supposed to go look at pornography or God says that I'm not supposed to go do this or that I'm supposed to treat my neighbor like this and I'm not doing that, but I'm choosing not to. I'm rebelling against God. And that stops his blessing from flowing. Sin. The enemy tempts us to sin. God doesn't tempt us. It tells us in the scripture that he himself tempts no one. But when we're tempted, he will not tempt us beyond that which we can endure. And he will provide the way of escape. Because he doesn't want us to, to, to sin. He doesn't want us to rebel against him. And when we rebel against him, it stops him from moving. When we rebel against God. I got another one. Sin. You're going, you're repeating yourself? No. No, when we sin against our brother or our sister. When I treat Jeff like he's a, a, a means to an end. It stops God's blessing from flowing. When I step on Ron so that I can get a little higher, it stops God's blessing from flowing. When I talk bad about Mary and I, and I gossip, it stops God's blessing from flowing. That one does a lot. That one, you know, people want to talk about all these pet sins out there. You know, Christians have a lot of pet sins. You know which one we don't have as a pet sin? Gossip. That destroys more churches than all the stuff we want to pick on. And people say it like this. They try to pass it off as a prayer request. Now, I don't want to gossip, but we need to pray about O'Brien because, you know, he's been down there at the bar drinking up his whole paycheck and, and, and Carol, she can't even get food on the table because, you know, he's a drunkard. You know, that stops God's blessing from flowing. That's gossip. Brian's not doing that, by the way, that I know of. <laughs> right? That stops the blessing of God. We have these competing kingdoms cla- clashing. I have another one. Demonic activity. Demonic activity. Some of you, if not most of you, are wonderful Americans who don't believe that demonic activity is real. But the Bible talks about it over and over and over and over and over again. It says the devil in the New Testament walks around like a roaring lion looking for whomever he can devour. This was written to Christians. The part about put on the full armor of God. We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that day is written to Christians. Demonic activity will stop the flow of God, of His Spirit moving. Temptation to pursue worldly passions. Things that in and of themselves aren't necessarily sin. I believe in the biblical principle of tithing. I believe it's in the New Testament. We get to Hebrews chapter 7. You're going to see exactly where it says that Jesus receives our tithes. New Testament tithing. Okay? That means I can do whatever I want with the other 90%. Right? So it's okay for me to go buy a boat. 
or a nice new fishing pole or a nice TV or whatever. There's nothing sinful about that. As long as I'm tithing and, and trusting God and being a good steward, I can use those things with, for whatever I want. But sometimes I make those the goal. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe you don't do it, but I do it. Sometimes I make those the goal. And I go after these things in the world, you know, and pursue them over and above the giver of everything, the creator of all, and that stops the flow of God. I might pursue a PS4 for my kids for Christmas and I was like $15 short so I didn't fill up this box. Is it bad to buy my kids a PS4? No, but I've stopped the blessing of God because I chose to pursue what I wanted instead of asking Him what He wanted. Do you understand? Now, I know that this isn't a complete explanation. There's a lot of other etc., etc., etc. I could put on there that would stop the flow that the enemy uses to stop the flow. But I think that you get the point. The war between these two kingdoms begins to explain why we need miracles but don't always see them happen. Why we need miracles but we do not always see them happen. There's people here today who need a touch from God. You need a miracle in your life. Yesterday in the airport, I walked up and, and, and I went back to Chick-fil-A. And I don't even like Chick-fil-A really. I'm not a chicken guy. You know, I'm more of a bacon guy. <laughs> you know? I mean, my favorite verse in the Bible is the sidebar. By this, he declared all food clean. Praise you, Jesus. Bacon's on! <laughs> Anyways. So I go back to Chick-fil-A. And I'm not going to be able to eat in the car on the way home because I need to drive and I'm scary enough driving without food in my hands. Ask the people who went with me. And uh, so I'm going to get some Chick-fil-A and I wait in the line and, and the girl says, go down there, this girl down there will help you now. So I walk down there and, and uh, I'm joking with the girl behind the counter. Her name's Brittany. I'm joking with her behind the counter. And, you know, we're just cutting up a little bit. And then I say, I say, hey, I got a question. Is this Chick-fil-A closed on Sunday or because it's in the airport it has to stay open? She goes, no, it's closed on Sunday just like all of them. She goes, boy, but I wish that it wasn't. And I said, well, girl, I'm a preacher. I'm okay with the fact that it's closed. That way you can go to church. She goes, she goes you're a preacher? I said, yes. Yeah. She goes, this girl needs prayer. And she begins to tell me everything that's going on. Her boyfriend's beating her. She had gotten sick the week before, and she works two jobs. And she says, I can't pay my light bill right now. And I need to be able to pay it. And, and I had to call off work last week at the other job. Now they won't put me back on the schedule. She's telling me all this stuff. And I said, well, Brittany, let's just pray right now. And we got to pray together. She needed a miracle. I don't know what God's going to do in Brittany's life. And as we left, I said to this, to this young lady, I said, Brittany, if your boyfriend hits you again, 
put his butt in jail. Okay? You don't have to put up with that. I feel led of the Lord to say this. This isn't part of my sermon. If you are a woman who is here today and your husband is beating you, divorce is not the answer. Put him in jail. You say, but I can't put him in jail. How am I going to survive? Guys, if you're going to divorce him, you're not going to have his money anyways. Put him in jail. Anyways, I digress. Some of you here today are in need of a miracle. And you're saying, I believe. Jesus, I believe. But help my unbelief. I mean, what do we do with this now that we know that we have these two competing kingdoms? Last week I said that God is still personally and miraculously involved in the spread of the gospel and that we should expect His supernatural intervention. That is what we believe. That is what I will always believe. It is not up for debate. I hold a lot of theology loosely. I don't think I know everything there is to know about God. But God has shown me time and time again that He is still supernaturally at work inside the church and sometimes in ways that make me uncomfortable. But He's shown His hand in it and so I say, okay, you be God today and I'll be Jerry. However, this stirs in us this thing about expecting His intervention. This stirs in us a big question that needs answered. If God is still involved... Then why do we not see these things happen? We said the first part of the answer is that there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. And they are at war. And rather than doubt that God can and does still intervene in human history, here's what we do with this. Let's take up our weapons and get in the fight. No, you didn't hear me. Let's take up our weapons and get in the fight. We had 35 or 40 people here today who decided to take up their weapon and started praying this morning. And that is an awesome start. But there needs to be something like 145 or 180 or 200. Get off the bench and get in the game. Another one of the preachers at at this, well, it was one of the preachers that was struggling. He said something really good. I'm going to say something good that he said. He said, we don't go to church, you know, like he he used a football analogy. He says, you know, in a football game, the the team huddles up and the quarterback, he goes, all right, guys, here's the play we're going to run. And he tells the whole play. And he goes, ready, break. And everybody's like, Oh, that is the best play. Oh, that's an awesome play. And then they run over to the bench and they sit down for five or six, seven minutes. And then they run back out there and go, Oh, pastor. Or, excuse me, quarterback. Oh, quarterback. That was the best play. Nobody calls a play like you. No, in a football game, they call the play. Why? So they could go run the play. Church... Don't tell me I preach a good sermon and then do nothing with it. 
Don't say that Matt Chandler preached a, taught a good Bible study lesson and, and, woo, and then do nothing with it. I'm with Matt Chandler on this. I heard him say this week, rather than trying to learn a whole bunch of new stuff, why don't we obey the stuff we already know? When we call the play, get in the stinking game and go run the play. Do you want to see Oil City become known for a different type of oil than the one that comes out of the ground? The oil of the anointing of God? Then get in the game. This place should be packed out when it comes to prayer. Our prayer team leader after the sermon last week, I I called the play, it was an audible. I called an audible on the field. I'm looking, I'm seeing everybody lining up and I'm like, Omaha, Omaha! You know, that's Sarah's Peyton Manning fan. (laughs) And I'm calling an audible. And and everybody shifted, you know, the the worship team's like, okay, fine, we'll move worship earlier and all this stuff so we could come in here and we could play in the game and we could get on our knees and pray. It's time to get in the game. Rather than saying God doesn't do that anymore, say, man, God does this and we need to get off our duffs and get in the game. God can and will supernaturally empower us in this battle and when the miracles don't flow like we had hoped, let's continue to believe in His power anyway. Like two people got that. When it doesn't happen the way we think it it should or they were hoping for, let's continue to believe anyway. Because if I gave up every time it didn't work the way that I thought it should work, then I'd be done already. I'd have been in ministry for a week. That first Sunday that I preached, I'd be like, came back the second Sunday and nothing changed. I'd be like, well, that's it. I'm going on. I quit. Get in the game. Because this game isn't a game. This game isn't a game. In this game, real people are really dying and really going to hell. My mom put a shotgun in her mouth. And I don't know if she got right with the Lord before she pulled the trigger. And some of you think that if you commit suicide, you can't go to heaven. Show me that in the Bible. It ain't there, friends. It is not there. And I don't know if she got right. But I can't help but struggle and wonder if she's not suffering. And I wonder if somebody would have got in the game in her town, would she have done that? We've got people that are dying all around us. We've got people that are turning to all kinds of things that they don't need to be turning to. We've got people who are swimming in a sea of debt, who are swimming in in their drug addiction. They're swimming in their alcohol addiction. They're swimming in this. They're swimming in that. And they just want out. They just want out. Get in the game. Let's get them out. Let's get them out. Do you know what makes us admire the the New York Fire Department on 9-11? That when all hell was breaking loose, they ran into the fight, not away from it. 
Church, let's follow the New York Fire Department and the New York Police Department's example and let's run into the fire and snatch people out of it. Like Charles Spurgeon said, if people die and go to hell, let them climb over us as we cling to their legs, begging them, imploring them, please don't go. Make them work to get to hell. Make them work. Make them try really hard. Another one of the preachers that was there at this conference this week said he was in California. There was an earthquake that happened. or He'd heard a guy talk about this. There was an earthquake that happened. And, and he was out there and he, he, the earthquake stopped and he got back on the road driving. He's going across this long bridge. All of a sudden the car, it's dark outside the car that's in front of him. He sees the taillights and all of a sudden they go, whoom. And he's like, Arr! and man, he gets stopped. And he's like, what in the world just happened? And he runs up and he looks and a section of the bridge is gone and the person just plummeted to their death and he turns around and there's cars coming and he jumps out in the street and he takes his shirt off and he's waving it around and he's trying to get them to stop and one after another, four cars go over. He didn't care that he looked weird. I don't want to look weird. I'm going to look weird if I believe in miracles. Get over it. Would you look weird to save somebody? And then a bus starts coming down the road full of people. And this man who knew nobody on that bus decided that if they die, they will kill me in the process. And he is no shirt out there standing in the middle of the road. He's waving. The bus is flashing its lights. It's honking. He's like, he's going to have to kill me to die. And the bus driver finally stops. He jumps off the bus like, what are you doing? He says, no, you've got to come here and see. And together they took the car and the bus and turned it sideways so that nobody else could get to their death. We've got to get in this game. Or let's just quit and go home. I'm not playing church. And, and there's a lot of you that I know you aren't going to play it either. Let's get in the game. You don't like everything we do at OCCA? So what? Neither do I. Get over it. Get in the game. I don't like everything. I don't like it. Who cares? I don't skip those parts. I show up. Because I'm part of the team. Put your personal stuff to the side. And get in the game. homework for this week is there really a war going on is there really this cosmic battle does this really explain why the miracles don't seem to flow all the time don't believe me because as i proved last week when i said ben franklin's bible and it was thomas jefferson's bible i can be wrong monday first corinthians chapter 15 Verse 20 through 28. Tuesday, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. Wednesday, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Thursday, Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11. Friday, Romans 8, 18 through 25. And Saturday, 1 Peter 4, 12 
through 19. Get in the game. Let's pray. Father, I've made a pretty big statement that why miracles don't seem to flow. Part of that reasoning is because there's a war that's going on. Lord, I know that's challenging to some of us, if not all of us. But Father, if I'm wrong about this, let your word not bear it out. But Father, if I'm right about it, let your word bear it out. Let it be true and let your people choose to get in your game and engage in the war. Lord, move in our hearts, move in our minds, move in our lives. Transform us from the inside out. And Lord Jesus, do it all for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said.